Welcome to another leadership podcast from the team here at C3 Southwest Washington. To find out more about our church, visit c3swwa.com. If you'll remain standing, we're going to pray in just a second. I was saying to Rowena as we pulled into the parking lot tonight, we have such a great team. And that really, uh, come on, yeah, give our teams a huge hand. And I'm, I'm talking about people who have been here for a tremendously long period of time. Uh, Pat Hernandez serves on a team I've, since day one that I moved to Vancouver. I think of Josh and Trish that have served for years. Then newer people, see Sam running around. Some of you don't even know who he is, but you will. It's great attitude, just excited to serve. I think about him and I know that Gabby's helping out now back in the kids' church, and, and it's awesome to see new people getting plugged in. Um, it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. It's how the church functions together as a church family. So I wanted to say thank you so much. Uh, we're in a series entitled Identity, and last week we really began and we talked about the two identities that each of us have. There's the identity that you perceive yourself to be, who you perceive yourself to be, which is a ever-moving target. It's the sum of memories that you have, things that have been said to you, wins and losses that you've had, failures, things that have been spoken over you or that maybe you believe about yourself that allow you to come to the conclusion, this is who I am. And then there's your biblical identity, who God, from the moment of your conception, said you are. You are who you are. You've been designed on purpose and for purpose. And God, at the moment of your conception, breathed over you your identity. Now, your perceived identity, oftentimes, does not line up with your biblical identity. But part of the wonderful experience of a relationship with God is God aligning those two things. Because as you begin to discover who God is, he'll begin to reveal who you actually are and allow you to step into your best life. It is impossible to truly know who you are until you discover a portion at a time who God is. Because identity void of God reduces you to abilities and tasks and accomplishments that are fleeting. You'll hinge all of your identity on your career and then your career will be gone and you'll ask the question, who am I? Because separated from God, you really don't know who you are. And so my prayer is through this, this series is that you begin to catch a better, clear glimpse of who God actually is. And as you see through that mirror or through that glass, looking at God, you'll be, get a reflection of who you are. First Corinthians chapter 13, verse 12 says, for now we see in a mirror or through a glass dimly. Talking about looking at God. We're squinting, we're trying to see who he is, but it says there come a day when it's face to face. Isn't that gonna, that's gonna be an amazing day. You and I trying to worship tonight, trying not to be distracted, trying not to smell what's ever being cooked out there or that thing you forgot to turn off at home you're worried about. You're, you're trying to see and there's all these distractions and God is not clear. Someday you will stand face to face before God. What an amazing moment that's gonna be. Looking into the heavens through the Hubble telescope is amazing. But someday your eyes are gonna behold the one who created you. Man, how good is that gonna be? And it goes on to say, now you know in part, but then you shall know 
fully. You will know fully who God is and you will know fully who you are. You'll know fully uh, the wins and the losses. You'll understand very clearly. And it goes on to say, even as right now you are already fully known, your identity is already established. And the more and more you can see God clearly, the more and more you'll understand your identity. Amen. I want to talk to you tonight specifically uh, entitled this Imago Dei, which means the image of God. And I want to press into that idea of capturing a vision for who God really is. So let's pray. Father, we thank you so much tonight for your word. We lean forward to discover your identity. As we discover your identity, we know that our identity will become clear. Father, I pray for those, especially maybe in the room tonight, who are struggling with voices that are trying to define them or circumstances that are trying to define them. God, I pray for a release from those voices. God, a, an ability to sense them for what they are. God, a moment of clarity to know that they're a lie. God, I also pray for those who are struggling to really trust you because there are some lies about you that they've heard, that they've experienced, that they've imagined, that really influence them and keep them from really leading fully into you. I pray for a release from the enemy. Ah, the truth will set them free. And so I pray, Lord, for your truth to be uh, conveyed through what I speak. But God, your truth is not limited by me, but it's released by the Spirit of God. And so through what is said, God, I know that you can bring revelation. We pray for just great success in your people's lives as they know you and as they function accordingly. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. And everyone said, amen and amen. Give him a big hand and you can be seated. Grab your Bible. Uh, I was uh, horrifically embarrassed because tonight during the uh, video announcements, the C3 update, there was a repeat of one of the announcements. The guy, uh, we're going to be uh, horse whipping the guy who makes those announcements this week. Whatever that ridiculous voice of his is, we will uh, we'll get that straightened out. The, the announcement that you did not get is we sent this out this last week. We'll send it out a few more times. We really want to invite all of you to re-register for a place to serve as we get ready to step into the new facility. Um, some of you are uh, new to our church family. We want to make sure we get you plugged in. doesn't matter your age, what your abilities are. There is a spot for you to serve. And you might not even have made a decision for Christ yet. You might not be a top theologian in the class. There's a spot for you to serve. And even if you're a top theologian, there's still a place for you to serve. And so we want to invite all of you to re-register. Um, you can do that online. You'll be seeing information about that over the next couple of weeks. And then we'll get you on a team, and it'll be good, okay? Uh, have you ever chosen a wrong course of action because, because you had incomplete information? I mean, maybe just today, right? Have you, ever, have you ever had the wrong information and it affected your decisions and led you down a wrong path? I was, as a kid, probably about the second grade, I watched something on TV where a man had received an injury in his body and didn't realize it, but it got infected and he had to have his leg amputated. So I was home alone one day, which was very often uh, in my childhood, and I think I wrecked my bike and I took out both kneecaps and shins and there was road rash and all kinds of stuff. And I remembered that the men on the TV who lost his legs, there was some blue discoloration. And so as my legs began to scab up, I'm staring through the fresh new scabs, and as disgusting as this sounds, I could see some blue, and I was terrified of losing my legs. So what I knew I needed to do is somehow 
muster up the strength to rip off these brand newly formed scabs and clean out additionally the wound. And I can tell you that after doing that a few times to make sure that I guaranteed my ability to walk for the rest of my life, as you can see, I was successful. And that information led me down the correct path and I did not end up with a major infection. But that, that misinformation that I had as a kid drove me to do some pretty gnarly stuff. And I look at my life, though, and I, I ask myself the question, and maybe I would ask you the same question, what misinformation maybe do you have that's been injected into your thought process, your, your subconsciousness, specifically about God, that actually is wrong and causes you to react in certain situations that instead of leading you towards the best outcome, actually leads you in the opposite direction. Perceptions, things you believe, things you misunderstood, you, misunder, you misheard. Uh, let me say this. that a, a, Is this from last week? Did I give you last week's notes? Oh, no, this is this week's notes. I've given, my, <laughs> I've given myself the proper information to be able to succeed here. Come on, Steve, trust yourself. <laughs> Still rattled by the announcements. Uh, a correct view of God enables you to partner with God in ways that will always lead to his best for your life. But a distorted view of God in your, is your enemy's most effective technique to guide you away from his best in your life. And so one of the things that the enemy has been working on since the moment even maybe before you even had consciousness and a clear understanding, is to bring you misinformation about who God is. To ever so slightly move you off course and to keep you from experiencing amazing things in your life. Things like, I've got to tear this thing off, and that actually the opposite is true. You need to leave that alone and allow it to heal up. But somehow you got this thing in your mind about who God is. This is where the enemy really does do his best work, to distort your view of God. Whether it's you have no relationship with God, there's probably already some significant distortion. Or even as a believer, to have a distorted view of God. That, yeah, you've got enough truth maybe to be a believer and to be a Christian, but there's some misinformation that exists within your understanding that keeps you from being a thriving believer based on the lie that you've believed. You can see that work happen in Adam and Eve's life. After they initially sin, the solution is to run towards God and fall on, the on his mercy and ask for his help in this situation, and yet their, the distortion of who God was actually, actually was became twisted by the things the enemy said, and so in that moment when they should have run towards God, they actually became fearful of what God was going to do to them. Really, they didn't need to fear God. They needed to run towards God, but they ran the opposite direction. You know, you can see it play out in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament. There's a pretty unusual verse in John chapter 16. Jesus was talking to his disciples, and he makes a statement to them. He says, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will actually think he is offering a service to God. How, is that, how would somebody get so off base that they think they're doing God a favor by killing someone? And yet when you read the story of a man that you know as Paul the Apostle, 
He actually starts off as Saul, a member of the Sanhedrin, a very strong, high-level leader within, amongst the Pharisees, one of the most intelligent men trained at the feet of Gamaliel. He actually, in his mind, has bought into the idea that these followers of Jesus are enemies of God. And in the book of Acts chapter 9, it says, Saul, still breathing out threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues of Damascus so that if he found anyone belonging to this new Christianity, men or women, that he might bring them bound back to Jerusalem for their execution. I mean, what would it take for you to get that tweaked in your understanding of God that you thought that killing people who were following him was actually helping his cause? And yet you don't have to look too far in the world that we live in to understand deception is very, very, very real. Now, the enemy is the author of deception, but Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, right? So as you press into your relationship with God, one of the things that God wants to do is wash your vision. He wants to wash your understanding, your knowledge, to, to uh, reveal deception and to illuminate truth. That's what he wants to work out because so much of the situations that you found yourself in without God is based on faulty wiring in the display panel of life. Um, I'm not a pilot. I, w I don't think I'd ever want to be in control of something like that. But I, I've listened to a few pilots talk about what it's like to fly through um, the uh, cloudy skies and not be able to see and trust your instrument panel and how weird of a moment that can be. It feels like you're going down, and yet your instruments say that you're flying level. And do I trust the instrument panel? Do I trust my gut, my feelings, my emotions? And then you, the thought is, but what if my instrument panel is wrong, right? And so that's some of the dilemma that we have. Um, and so the question I have for you is, what do I believe about God that is a lie intended to keep me from his best? I want to try to give you 10 of the top lies that I've heard through the years that people struggle with. Can I rattle through these fairly quickly? Probably not, but I'll try to rattle through them, okay? Okay, these are skewed perceptions of God that are very common, and I, I don't know if you could see it. Again, my notes are available, but I'll, I'll uh, maybe pull back a little bit so that maybe you can see it a little bit better. Number one is, that, is the misperception that uh, God is a see-you-after-you-die God. He's not really involved in this realm. God is for the next chapter after we all die. We, we are the only ones that really control our here and now. God is not involved in the here and now. Someday he will be. And now that leads to some actions that take us off course. We don't really involve God. The door that would invite him in is left locked. And so anything that we accomplish on earth, we only accomplish within our own strength or our ability. You know, the truth is that God is present and desires to be involved in every moment of your life. He's not a see you after you die God. He's a right here and right now God. The book of Psalms says, where shall I go from your, uh, where shall I go from your presence or from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to the heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in hell, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell to the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. God wants to be involved and is involved in every aspect of our lives. And to wait until after we die 
is certainly to, to miss the key for why we are here. But that is a significant lie that a lot of people believe in. Another one of the lies that we see um, that people deal with is uh, I'm busy running the universe, God. Um, the, the universe is vast. It requires God's attention. God doesn't really know the specifics happening here and now in my life unless they're really big. If I need to get God's intention, something really big would have to be going on, but nothing in my life really warrants his d disconnecting from the other things to focus in on me. And what that lie leads us to live out is a lowered perception of how God sees us and values us. All the things God's doing out there in the universe, they're important. My life doesn't really matter. And so our view of ourselves is diminished. It impacts how we see ourselves because of how we think God sees us, and it lowers his involvement in our outcomes in life. When the truth is, running the universe for God is effortless. God spends more time thinking about your pinky than actually running the universe. He has set the universe in motion and doesn't even need to give it a second thought while he is constantly thinking about the aspects of your life. The truth is that that is the heart of God. Actually, I need to click my button here. Um, Luke chapter 12, verse number 24 says, Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither... Um, <laughs> they have, I'm trying to look at it back there. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. How much more value are you to God than the birds? Now, listen, we live in a mixed-up world God values the ravens. God values the puppies. But people are more important in God's measurement than all of that. You are more valuable than the whales. The whales are valuable, but you are more valuable. Your life means more to him. That's how he's measured it. How about you are my entertainment God? Well, what does that, what does that mean? You know, God has basically created the world for his pleasure He's like a dog trainer that trains you, the dog, for his amusement, not for your pleasure. Um, he likes to get us to do what he wants us to do for his enjoyment. Our enjoyment is never the focus ever. To keep us participating, he gives us the occasional treat. But to keep the game going, he withholds so that we don't get used to eating all the time. As long as we do the tricks he wants, he is willing to reward us with treats. And so we developed this thinking that if I do the things that God's happy with, then he'll like me and he'll continue to work in my life. The problem with that is good outcomes can become rare, and when they do happen, we expect to get tricked later on. You ever heard this, the, uh, the comment, oh, well, I know that good thing happens, but don't, don't worry, the shoe will drop soon. Oh, don't jinx it by talking about how great thing ever, everything is, because then you can expect bad things to happen. That's a perception that God is playing games with us, moving us all over the place. And ultimately, uh, we develop animosity toward God because he's constantly teasing us. Ultimately, um, there are better rewards than his lame treats, so we disengage in the relationship and go off to participate in things where we can reward ourselves consistently. But the truth is that God... Uh, created the world for his glory, but he placed you in it for your pleasure. I don't know where we bought it. we bought into this idea that somehow pleasure 
doesn't belong in a Christian's life. That, like, we're only really godly if we're suffering. We've adopted some beautiful examples of people who serve God, but we bought into their storyline as if it needs to be ours. As if somehow we really honor the person who lives the ascetic life, um, like Martin Luther, who's so intense on finding out who God is, he tries to limit himself to a grain of rice every day, and somehow we equate that with the life God wants us all to live. And yet when you read in the scripture, even in the New Testament, 1 Timothy 6.17, it is God who richly provide us, provides us with everything to enjoy. No good father revels in the suffering of his child. And yet somehow we bought into this idea that if I'm suffering, then I'm spiritual, but oh man, you know, I can't, I can't even desire enjoyment because that somehow would be wrong. Imagine if that was your child, your child's outlook on life. You'd be like, where, where have you, where did you get this? And yet we bought into so much of that in our Christian upbringing. How about the I am the reluctant helper God? Now, some of you are going to immediately blow this off. Oh, God, God, what really wants to help us? Oh, really? Um, then how come you pray the way that you pray? Begging, pleading, straining till things pop out in your neck to try to convince God to actually participate when in reality, before you even ask, God is more desirable to get involved than you are actually to have him involved. And we think that effective prayer is about convincing God when really effective prayer is convincing this earth of what God says. Prayer and fasting is not to get God to do anything. It's to get this earth to yield to the will of God. But we think, oh, if I pray, then if I fast, if I pray extra long, God will reward my extra long prayers with an outcome when in reality, we're punching through the things that are holding back God's prayer because that's our role. Our, our piety towards God is not to cause a reluctant God to participate at all. You know, if that's the case, we see him as the one who has resources but really doesn't want to help or that he must be convinced with the right words, the right actions, and the right intensity. And that causes us to go to extremes to convince God to get involved and then can really confuse the situation depending on how things play out. When the truth is God is our enthusiastic helper desiring even better outcomes than you can even dream. Check this out. John chapter 16, verse 24. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. That your joy may be full. I think God gets more excited about the opportunity for us to be filled with joy at what he's done than he actually is in meeting the need. Because the need is like, it's a, it's a genuine need and he already wants to meet that but what he really wants us to do is experience fullness that comes from a relationship with him. That he is who he said he would be. He's our provider. This helping at all? A little bit, maybe? How about um, we bought into that skewed perception of the stingy, miserly God who is very, very similar to the previous one. But he's the God who has abundant resources but does not want to share. He doesn't want to us to have some of the bounty that he has. Remember, that's exactly what the serpent said to Eve in the garden. 
See, God doesn't want you to have all the knowledge he has because if you get all the knowledge he has, then you will have it and what will make him different than you. See, he wants to stay here and keep you down here. It's like some of you, you've, you've worked under some bosses that you know they know some stuff and you're asking them to tell you some stuff, but they don't want to tell you the stuff because they want to be the only one who knows the stuff because in their mind, that makes them more valuable. Except Jesus taught the opposite is that when you give it away, actually by empowering other people is what really makes you more valuable, not hoarding the information. Hmm. Just a note for a few of you out there. Um, the outcome is then, if we see God as that stingy, miserly God, we don't even ask because we believe that he's unlikely to respond, and if he does, it probably uh, will happen only with enough harassment or the right magic incantation to get him to do what we're asking. And if he does respond, he's going to show up with a portion of what is needed, probably just barely enough because he's definitely not a more than enough God. Oh God, I, I'm desperate. If you just, just meet my need, we, we don't even think in terms of more than enough. And yet when we watch where Jesus fed the multitude, he fed the multitude and they had extra left over. And we see that over and over all throughout scripture. He's not the God of less than enough. He's not just the God of enough. He's the God of more than enough. And the problem is, according to your faith, be it done unto you, if you see God as stingy, you will interact with God as if he's stingy, and that will impact the outcome as it would with anybody else. If you treat someone as if they're trying to rob you, maybe at first they will try to convince you that they're not trying to rob you, but after a while, your relationship with them is going to become very tense because they'll just be frustrated trying to convince you constantly that they're not trying to rob you. And so the way we posture ourselves in relationships open, often opens the door for the type of relationship we experience. Now, it doesn't change the person on the other side, but it affects the interaction between certainly the two of us. Um, what I love, I know this is a, 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 a verse about tithing, but it applies. God, the truth is that God desires to meet your needs with abundantly above and beyond the resources even that you need. He doesn't want you to feel loved enough. He wants you to feel abundantly loved. He doesn't want you to feel needed. He wants you to experience being purposely used in an eternally magnificent way. He, he doesn't want you to have a survivable marriage. Oh, God, just help me to get through this day with these, this person. He wants you to lay down at nighttime and be overwhelmed by how amazing your relationship is. He wants to do, the Bible says that he wants to do abundantly above and beyond the, anything that you could even ask or think. And yet, so often we don't pray because we think to ourselves, yeah, God probably doesn't really care about this anyways. And it's, again, it's one of the enemy's greatest tactics to keep you from even taking the first step into his best because you have a skewed view of who God is. How about the um, I love to be in charge God? He's basically the ultimate dictator. Your compliance fuels his ego. Follow my rules. It makes me feel powerful. 
These rules really don't make a lot of sense. They're only for my pleasure and your displeasure. My rules are to be endured, after all. In fact, uh, it's not your pleasure that I care about. It's mine. In fact, your pleasure is, as I said previously, sinful. The fact that you enjoy living in my dominion really is a problem. You should be grateful to just suffer well. And the outcome of that is rebellion or complete submission, and I don't know which is worse. You hear what I say? It's either rebellion, I'm not following any of your rules, or it's, okay, like a robot. Never questioning, never wondering, just basically walking around in the circle that you feel like has been provided for you. And scripturally, nothing could be farther from the truth. And yet, so many believers have actually got involved with unhealthy strains of Christianity or unhealthy uh, local churches to some degree where there's so much legalism, rule following, and somehow it doesn't come from God, but it becomes the measurement by which you are esteemed by. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. I didn't realize when I first got saved that the devil had music and then God had music, but some of God's music was actually still the devil's music and should be lit on fire as well. Apparently, there were some beats of music that were actually the devil's beats. The devil, somewheres, after he had fallen and been cast to the earth, concocted a series of rhythmic beats that were his verbiage that if Christians sang to that beat, somehow then they were actually worshiping the devil, even though all the songs were about God. It was so confusing for me because I threw away all of my David Bowie stuff. <laughs> Hold the applause, please. And then I went out and bought all this new Petra and Res Band stuff only to go to a, a Jimmy Swaggart conference to find out that I was listening to the devil's music still. I remember going to picnics at the church in the first couple of years and it's 179,000 degrees outside, but bless God, nobody was wearing shorts. So we are all honoring God. Jay, you would have never survived there. Thank you for wearing pants tonight. Jay's like out. It's awesome. Thank you, Jay. You know, it's just this weird things that come in. God's not pleased with you. And things that aren't even in Scripture, but are there things that we perceive, right? You know, I love that Scripture teaches us that God provides the perfect roadmap he invites us to follow. He not only allows us to navigate, but he puts us in charge of the navigation as we use his map. God is not a control freak. In fact, Jesus came to set you free and put you in control according to his abundant rules. God's rules are not for your limitation. They're actually for your advancement. You know, I know it really stinks that you have to drive down the road in between the yellow lane, the yellow stripe, and the white stripe, in the, or vice versa, the, the yellow stripe. And it depends on if you're going the right way or the wrong way. And those could seem so limiting, except for there for your successful journey. I used to think, well, God, I guess God doesn't want me to do that because he doesn't want me to have any fun. No, God wants me to have great pleasure 
And where that road is leading is actually to a dead end with a cliff at the end. John, or Luke chapter 10, verse 19, behold, I have given you authority. You have authority to lead your life. God, God trusts you so much that he wants to give you authority in your own life. He wants to place you to place your hands on the wheel. And if you want to go to the left, I mean, if he doesn't want you to go to the left, he'll make it clear. But you can go to the left with confidence that he's going to bless your footsteps. God is, there are so many times in life where you're praying, oh God, show me your will, because you're terrified of making a wrong step. And I tell people regularly, just take a step. If you don't hear from heaven, God will bless the step you take. Oh, I don't want to buy the wrong car. I'm going to find the car God has for me. I'm pretty sure if there's a bad car, he can reveal that. But you get to choose. Oh, I'm worried about marrying the wrong person. Well, you know, there's some biblical criteria. But God will bless the relationship you choose. God will bless the career you choose. God will bless the business you start. Oh, I started the wrong business. Well, if it's murdering people, probably, Yes. God is not a control freak. He's giving you authority over your own life. That's terrifying. <laughs> Do I have enough time? I only got two minutes left. Oh, man. Okay. Um, the gatekeeper of all things God. That's the one that we believe that exists, that anything that happens anywhere, any place, any time, he either caused it or he allowed it. Right? It happened because it was somehow his will. He's to be blamed for everything that happens. And that leads us to the concern that what kind of loving God would allow earthquakes and fires and thefts and car accidents and that guy blew through that red light. Oh, am I, I'm out of the screen. Thanks, Dave. Like Dave's like, ooh. Thank you, Dave. We have a great team. They're awesome. We do. And the, my first thought in my mind is like, why is Dave trying to distract me back there? What is he doing? Quit messing with me. The truth is that the enemy is actively working for your loss. Every one of us. And in the process, we have a responsibility as believers to see it, to resist it, to overcome it, or... If it's successful, to see it be redeemed by God for the glory of God and ultimately for our best. John chapter 10, verse 10 says, The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. And Jesus goes on to say, But I came that they may ha have life and have it abundantly. And you can have abundant life even though something has shown up in your life and taken you down to your knees. The Bible says what, the, what you meant for evil, God can turn around for good. There's no thing that has happened in your life that can't be redeemed. There's not a mistake that you can make that God can't fix. Now, he might not be able to change the circumstance, but he can bring about his good even through the wrong actions of others and sometimes, or most of the time, even through your wrong actions, although there are repercussions for those things. Number eight, I've got to hurry up because they want to come sing. Um, I just need to hurry up because I need to hurry up. Uh, you've gone too far now. The, you've gone too far now, God. That's the patient God who has lines of disqualification. He expects perfection, but he's willing to fudge for a while. But at some point, you are out. 
Not really sure where that spot is, but I'm pretty sure that I've already crossed that line. It doesn't matter if you've been a believer for three weeks. I remember three weeks in, I sinned. I actually thought when I got saved, I was done sinning forever. That's the power of Jesus, right? He died to set me free from the curse of sin. I'm no longer sinning. About three weeks in, I sinned. I, I actually had some bad thoughts. Please don't lose respect for me, but I did have some bad thoughts. And for me, it was shocking. And I remember thinking, what kind of Christian am I? I must not be a Christian at all. I've had bad, terrible thoughts. And I had no idea that would be the least of my sins. <laughs> Here's the truth. Regardless of your sin, Christ's payment for our sin is powerful enough to keep us in fellowship with God, to experience forgiveness, and, and this is a key and, and his transforming work. That if you think you've gone too far, if you have the clarity to think you've gone too far, you haven't. It's the person who lives thinking there is no limitation to their disobedience, that God will always forgive them. That is the person who is actually in danger. But your concern reveals that there's a desire and likely you need to participate. First John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive our sins. And here's the key, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In other words, to wash you up so that you don't continue to do the same things over and over. He's able to change who you are. He's a, you'll have to participate in that, but he's able to change you. He's able to change you from the inside out. Those, those sinful things that you used to want to do, you don't want to do them anymore. You, 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 your values will change over time. Nine, the angry judge God. God's greatest joy is catching you doing something wrong. His second greatest joy is punishing you for what you've done wrong. Church is where he can actually catch you. That's why you're worried if you ever step through those doors, they'll collapse. Um, hell is God's ultimate creation because the idea of people spending eternity in hell is actually more exciting to him than people spending eternity in heaven. And so the outcome is you spend your life attempting to outrun God, having assigned to yourself the immutable sentence of guilty, of, of guilt that's irredeemable. But the truth is God sees you through the transaction of Jesus as one whose debt is paid in full before you ever even accept his payment. This is New Testament I'm talking. But God shows his love for us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. So even though maybe you sit in this room and you've not made a decision for Christ, God is able to embrace you because Jesus already died for your sin. And for the rest of your life, he will be able to view you through that lens, even before you ever say yes. The scripture says that Jesus, when he showed up, he stood up, he read from the scroll, and he read that this is the season of God's favor over all of our lives. God is able to see us through the eyes of favor because of what Jesus was about to do. Now there will be a great judgment at the end, but all of your life, God is able to see you separate from your sin because of the work of Jesus. So no, he's not the angry judgment, judgmental God, 
He's the loving, forgiving God who paid away, paid the way for you to have a relationship with him. Let me give you the final one because I think it's equally as important. The nothing but love God. It's this perception that no matter what I do or no matter what I say or no matter how I act or no matter what I decide to believe in, God is love and he is ever loving and ever forgiving. And while, yes, that is very true, the truth is that while God is loving, failure to respond appropriately to the gift of his son will remove the effective nature of that gift. Scripture teaches, this is, this is a shocking scripture, but it says, for if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Amazing scripture. It causes you to stand up and soberly view your actions and own your own sin. And that while God is loving, I respond to his love in humility and in obedience because that's the appropriate response for someone who has given so much. Will you stand with me? I want to, I've got a couple more slides, but I'm just gonna skip over those. And I just wanna ask you, we're gonna sing a final song, but I wanna ask you like personally, what, what lie are you listening to from the enemy that's keeping you from the next step in your relationship with God. Now, if you haven't started a relationship with God, what lie is keeping you from taking that next step? In other words, just why are you not saying yes to following Jesus? There could be a thousand different reasons why, but what lie are you believing? Because I can assure you, it would only be a lie. It wouldn't be based on anything about who God actually is, how he sees you, what he wants to do in your life. It'd be based on something that the enemy has distorted. And I would challenge you to hear and see the truth and make a decision tonight for following Jesus and begin that relationship. You don't have to know everything about God. When babies are born, they don't know everything about their parents, but over time they grow into that relationship. Very naturally, you will too. But what lie are you believing that's keeping you from your next step as a believer? What thing has happened to you that's paralyzed you that keeps you from trusting God? What tragedy has transpired in your life that was unexpected that feels like God stole something of value out of your life? What thing did you pray about and then get involved with that then failed? Now you're looking at God like he's that dog trainer who's jerking your chain, playing games with your life? What lie are you believing that's keeping you from the next step? What, that maybe uh, the person that you felt God sent into your life turned around and abandoned you, and now you blame God for how that's turned about in your life? What lie are you believing that's keeping you from God's next best in your life? Maybe the fear that if you give what he wants, you won't have enough. What lie are you believing? Well, they'll all laugh at me. They'll think I'm stupid. Everybody will find out I'm a hypocrite. Can I ask a favor? Will all hypocrites in this room please raise your hand? And if you don't raise your hand, I will come out there and raise it for you. 
Every one of us is a hypocrite. Welcome to Team Jesus. That's why he died for you. Let me pray over you. Father, God, I pray you'll give your people a glimpse of who you truly are. Through the scriptures, through the preaching and teaching of your word, through podcasts, through books, through listening to teachings, watching videos. Reveal yourself, Lord, through your Holy Spirit. Your Holy Spirit reveals truth of who you are. He, he promised, Jesus promised that the Holy Spirit would do that. Holy Spirit, you are here, you're present in this room, you're resident in the lives of believers. Reveal to us who our Father is. Lord, I pray for clarity of who you are. And I know that it's not instant clarity, it's step-by-step, day-by-day clarity. But Lord, as we hear your word, as we hear the testimony of others, as we listen to preaching and teaching, allow the lies to be exposed and to be pushed aside like windshield wipers would push away raindrops. And the clarity would become clearer and our driving would become better and our direction would become more accurate and our turn in the road in the curve would be more trustworthy and more comfortable because we can see what is ahead. Forgetting the things which are behind us, let us fix our eyes on the author and the finisher of our faith, Christ Jesus. Jesus, I I commit myself to looking at you. And sometimes it is blurry. And there are a million people trying to tell me what you look like. But God, you are able to show me. And I pray for that clarity. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. And everyone said, Amen and amen. Thanks for listening. To find out more about our pastors, leaders, and what we do at C3 Church, visit our website at c3swwa.com.